This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. We just heard there from King Cruel, Dumb Surfer, the name of the track from the latest album, The Ooze, which came out uh, in September 2017. And I have to say, I was not expecting that track. I uh, pulled out a CD from Radiohead's A Moon-Shaped Pool to play, not realising that it was actually King Cruel, a CD I lost about six months ago, probably the last time I played them on this particular program. And then I went and put it in the wrong CD case. So uh, luckily... Uh, the uh, the Radiohead CD that's supposed to be in there is there, but now I've rediscovered the, the King Cruel Lost CD. I just hope that when I get home, I can work out where I put the CD case but that six months ago I was looking at going, but the CD's not there, what have I done? Maybe I threw it out. I hope not. I think it's sitting on top of one of the speakers at home. <sighs> that's the case of the case of the missing CD. Indeed, Bernard <laughs> Callio. Indeed. I demand you illustrate it and turn it into some kind of sequential visual narrative immediately. Work on it now. Um, that, that sound you can hear is the sound of Bernard's brain and pencil working <laughs> scritch, 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 in tandem. Scritch, scritch, scritch. Uh, so here we are um, with uh, our more or less monthly, probably less monthly. Approximately, approximately monthly, monthly. But time is an illusion. Yeah, lunchtime doubly so. So uh, uh, our comics segment, Drawn Out. Uh, named by a listener many years ago now, um, and uh, whereby, whereby I uh, turn up and have some things to say about comics events, comics publications, comics news, and um, uh, increasingly it's very difficult to get to the international stuff because there's just so much happening um, in, in Australia and in Melbourne, which is which is bloody excellent. Not a bad thing at all? Not a bad thing at all. Although, I must say, um, uh, Richard and I were speaking off air a moment ago about um, getting to various places in Australia to cover various, um, not about to say comics, but arts, uh, um, uh, events and festivals, and this is also the case with uh, comics at the moment. So I just wanted to uh, briefly mention that two weeks ago we had the Perth Comics Arts Festival, so I didn't make it over to that, but a few, what would we call them, Easterners, Easterners uh, made it over, and uh, apparently it was a really great, uh, the reports have been that it was a great comics festival. I saw a, uh, a news story about it on uh, on the one of those televisual devices that fits into your pocket. <laughs> Indeed, one of those alternative to, um, to, to, to the comic book way of getting your pictures and your words in your, in your brain. Um, yes, yes, it did get a, a bit of coverage and that was uh, Justin Randall who's a comic book artist over there who's doing this stuff called 3D drawing. So it's sort of a virtual... Well, that was one of the things that was featured in that uh, little report. You know, he, he was demoing this, this way of drawing... a drawing actually drawing a comic in three like a like a hologram drawing so that's pretty exciting stuff and he's one of the uh there's a bit of of a cadre of comics teachers over uh, in Perth at the moment, including uh, Melbourne's own uh, uh, Bruce Mutard, who's who's over there doing his PhD, and he's one of the movers and shakers. Is of, he doing his PhD at Curtin? Or? Uh, uh, I think it's Edith Cowan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they have they have many good universities. They also have many good comics publishers over there. Gestalt Comics being perhaps the in- the standout one who've become a really significant national publisher. Absolutely, absolutely. Sorry, international publisher. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, really, really, and and. Um, uh, 
Uh, yes, I know there's some re- reviews coming up. Not this, not this week, time, month, year, um, but next time uh, of some get some new guest alt stuff, which I just think is very exciting. But uh, so there was there's PCAF, uh, Perth Comics Arts Festival. The week later, uh, in Sydney, uh, there was the 2018 Ledger Awards. Now the Ledger Awards are named after. Uh, Peter Ledger, who is an Australian comic book artist who went over to uh, America and um, uh, died too young, but uh, they've been the the annual comics awards, you know, awards for excellence in the comic book field uh, for for the last five years. Yes, did you win one? A, f- a couple of years ago. Oh, I'm blushing. Uh, I did indeed. I thought uh, so. I, I got a, a platinum uh, ledger, a ledger which is like you know contributions to the to the art form. Um, so for helping out and, and being a, being a being a spruker and, and out there this year. The Platinum Ledger was won by wonderful Tim McEwen, who is a comic book artist up in Sydney uh, and most famous for a book called um, uh, Greener Pastures, which was about a, a bull uh, who, who one day just stands up on his back legs and acquires the power of, of speech. And, and it's a beautiful fish-out-of-water sort of story. Um, but, but he's awarded his Platinum really for an enormous... Um, a palette of activities that he does as a teacher. Uh, he's ve- been very involved in setting up the Supernova comic um, convention thing. Um, uh, yeah, so he's he's a real su- helper, supporter, creator of, of um, comic community, I suppose. So he was awarded that this year. But one of the great things about the ledgers is that they are now... Oh, they do they, a, an anthology. Yes. So, And this is this book, the uh, uh, Ledgers Annual, is uh, a very handsome volume and it, it basically, it, it, what it I think its use and power is, is that it captures up the sort of state of play. Uh, and it's not complete, of course it can't be, but what it does do is that the, the significant thing that the ledgers do is that they recognise past great comic book makers. So a woman called Moira Bertram was honoured at this, and, and she's um, uh, d- died now, but she was very active in the 40s and 50s and um, part of that explosion of Australian comic book publishing that was around at that time. We really did have a golden age when there were import restrictions on American comics and so a local uh, industry really uh, pumped up. Anyway, Moira Bertram um, and a man called Yaroslav uh, Harchek, uh, who was a, a James... Bo- who did a lot of comics um, illustration for James the James Bond strip uh, from, from Fleet Street. But they were, they were two sort of uh, ledgers on Hall of Fame, I suppose, yeah. you know, sort of retrieving a tradition. Um, and and recognising that that tradition exists, yeah. which I think is such a key part of it, because I suspect the Australian comic book sector is no different to the theatre sector or many other... Uh, art forms, perhaps the visual arts aside, um, where because they're ephemeral media, mm. comic books, for example, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, printed on pretty flimsy newspaper, I think we're easy, yeah, yeah, yeah. easily forgotten. Yeah. Um, performing arts are literally an ephemeral mm. medium because of the way they are performed and then they're gone. Mm. Um, so it's so important to document these traditions yes. and to recognise a history and a lineage that is far too easily forgotten. Yes. So the fact that the ledgers are not only honouring the great comic book artists and writers and makers of the past, but documenting yes. their work for a contemporary audience is mm. such a valuable thing. Yeah, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant act of memory, I think, the, the ledgers night. And so the, uh, you know... Um, 
we heard from the wife of Yaroslav Hacek, who, uh, and who just did an amazing job of um, giving us a witness event, uh, uh, um, account of his work and his life. You know, it was a it was a great uh, in that way. And then of course, also, of course, it's an awards night, so current works are, are celebrated. And then there's you know talk of future. You know, so there's that that this booklet. The Ledger's Award annual uh, documents say the Comics Arts Workshop, uh, which is a um, n- not related to the Ledger's at all, but it's a it's a workshop set up uh, to aid and support graphic novelists who are working on long form comics. So it's it's a it's it's a very significant um, event and night, I think. And, yeah. and this so publication, I mean, this is what 110 pages, yeah. color, beautifully printed, yeah. really striking cover art. Yes. The 2018 Ledger Awards Annual, which yes. I would imagine you could pick up in good independent comic shops. Well, I was speaking to Br- that that man again, Bruce Mutard, who is the publisher of this uh, book, and he was saying, "I'm going to get some down to All Star Comics uh, in Melbourne." So that's a, that's a very fine comic shop we have in Melbourne, and so and also it's, a, uh, an award-winning kind <laughs> of uh, oh, so many awards comic shop. Hard to but move. The fact that this annual, as we say, is not only uh, it's it's publishing comics, but it's publishing essays as well. Yes. It's, uh, so it's a really kind of meaty publication, and I can really see over I don't know how many years this is. That, the, the annual's been going for three years now, right? But yeah, so it just really, look over them and go, oh my gosh! Yeah, you know. getting hold of these if you are interested in the history of Australian comics uh, and the future of mm, Australian comics. Precisely. Lining these up on your bookshelves, I can see these being really important mm. um, in terms of archival uh, access and so kind of writers of the future in a hundred years' time. When uh, people are, whether they're writing books, whether they're writing PhDs, whatever, these kind of publications will be so vital in documenting uh, Australian comic book history. Yeah, yeah it's, it's wonderful. Very, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you for bringing that in. Yeah, no problem. And I'm so enthusiastic. <laughs> you this are so enthusiastic. Can I show you one of the? Uh, we got time for that. This is uh, so I brought in one of the gold winners. So we had a, a two gold winners this year. Uh, one at of the them, ledgers. At the ledgers. Thank you very much. Uh, one of them was uh, Alary May Harris's uh, a story um, uh, about a true crime that was uh, committed down in uh, Tasmania and she has done the uh, version, the uh, comic book version called Reported Missing of that. So that's online uh, at The Nib. So it's Ellery May Harris's uh, reported missing. So as well, so that's one of the gold ledger w- award winners, and it's a it's a document, uh, yeah, documentary co- uh, comic, uh, a, a um, uh, verbatim, verbatim comic um, and it's about a, cr- a real crime that was committed and the impact of that on the family and the community. And so that's an online comic. That's the an online other comic. gold ledger I am yes. now holding in my hot little hands. Mm. Craig Phillips, Giants, Trolls, Witches, Beasts, Ten Tales from the Deep Dark Woods. Yeah. Uh, which... Uh, anybody who is a fan of myth-making, storytelling, uh, your, your Neil Gaiman-esque totally. imaginative worlds, yep. uh, it looks like this is the kind of comic for you. Very, very much. And um, uh, just I, was, I had to tear this book out of my son Zebedee's hands on the way out the door this morning. Uh, so he's, what, 13? Um, and they, they, so these are retellings of 
classic stories of myth and legend. Thor is in there, Momotaro from Japan. Just looking at the contents page, we've got yeah, we've got familiar stories from uh, I don't know from Sweden, for example. But the, and uh, the story of Finn McCool from yeah. Northern Ireland. But we've all, there's also fairy tales in here from Poland, from Germany, uh, from America. Uh, the King of the Polar Bears, <laughs> which I imagine is an, perhaps an Inuit legend. Yeah. Uh, uh, off the top of my head, but gorgeous, full colour, colourful, yes, um, I mean the, imaginative story. Ah, oh, just the <laughs> sorry that oh, I just flipped to one of those beautiful uh, pages in a comic book where you've got series of panels on one side presenting events, and then the big dramatic reveal on the next page, the full page comic spread of uh, I imagine it's Thor and fighting the giants. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a magnificent page. So yeah, the, the, Craig Fillers. Z's artwork is really a, a, a joy to behold. It's as as as, as Richard's saying, it's in full colour, and it's a very very um, uh, achieved achieved uh, very accomplished, very accomplished, very beautiful, almost deco sort of style that he's got of doing of doing the, the drawings, but not 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 that stylized, but great cartooning and. What you've got here, I think, is really great introductions or adumbrations of these classic stories of myth, myth and legend. Yeah, and, I, and, and and kudos again to um, Alan and Unwin, local publisher, who are doing uh, so much to so, support the local comic industry. So, totally, totally. So that this is a great, a great addition to their line of uh, comic books for kids. Really. So this yeah. will be easily accessible in bookshops all over the totally, country uh, because totally. it is from a major publisher. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, paperback. Uh, kind of about ooh, 100, almost 185 pages or thereabout, yeah. full colour. And, yeah, so if you've got a kid in the family who loves myth and legend, mm. uh, this, I suspect, will be fascinating for them. Yeah. My one critique of it, looking through it, is that, oh, no, I, maybe I should take that back. I was going to say it looks like the protagonists of a lot of the stories are, are boys, but kind of uh, there's a, a fair chunk of them but there yeah. do seem to be several where kind of uh, a boy and a girl yeah. are the protagonists or, or, or two girls rose rose white and, and snow red the other way around uh, and in the baba yaga story uh, is it's a it's a, a young girl who's the who's the protagonist so cool. it's yeah, so it's my first impression is not entirely correct <laughs> i like to be proved wrong especially in that case yes bernard thank you so much so good so good to see you see you soon so good to as always have an enthusiastic conversation <laughs> about comic books Series Mania Melbourne has returned to Acme for its second year, presented by Acme and Film Victoria. It's a celebration and an investigation of really what seems to have become the dominant cultural art form of the 21st century television and series television. Joining us to uh, to tell us all about Series Mania Melbourne, we have uh, Christy Matheson, uh, Program Manager at ACME, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image at Federation Square. Christy, good morning. Good morning. Nice to be here. Nice to have you with us. And uh, we also have the Creative Director of Series Mania from France, uh, Francois-Pierre Pellenard-Lambert. Welcome to Triple R. Bonjour. So, why do you think television has become so all-pervasive to the point where the great auteurs and artists are no longer making film, but they're making television series? 
I think probably it's uh, a question of the way that the industry and especially the cinema industry is organized today. And uh, with the, uh, the amount of budget that you're spending on an average movie, uh, you need to have franchise. You don't, the cinema industry doesn't like gamble. Uh, they like to have um, sure things in a way. So, of course, you still have all these um, very interesting films b- being made. But um, I feel that, especially in the minds of the creators, um, today it's in a way easier to go uh, to, um, the, to fiction. And also what's amazing about fiction that you've got time to work around characters and uh, all the storylines sometimes needs to be nurtured on the long run. And, um, and in fiction and TV series, it's just an amazing place to do that. It's certainly uh, your comment about kind of, I guess, kind of cinema, the fact that it, it needs to be a franchise in order to make itself pay and so forth, kind of then also brings a, a certain kind of shallow repetition to, to filmmaking sometimes. Whereas in TV, as, as we've seen with so many uh, programs, Christy, the, the depth of imagination and the, the creative flair that can be used to tell uh, stories, particularly kind of long-term narrative, really makes television the ideal medium? Well, I think what's really interesting too is that, you know, for so long television was the poor cousin to cinema. Idiot box. Um, Yeah, idiot box. And I think that people really underestimated the power of television. And I think what's really interesting in the landscape at the moment is that, you know, with the industrial backdrop of cinema and TV changing so much this wall between cinema and television has become very porous. So I love the idea that you have directors that are working across both mediums and that maybe we're not so snobbish about television anymore and maybe we're allowing audiences uh, that greater autonomy to not have to make a choice. You can you can love film and you can love television and it's not an either-or anymore, which I think is kind of a very liberating place for audiences to sit as well. And I imagine for some filmmakers and some film festivals, from what I know, quite a frightening place as well because they're they're suddenly saying, but you can't show television programs at the Cannes Film Festival. They shouldn't be in competition because they're not film. Yeah, and and I think that for an audience member, this this doesn't make make any difference anymore. And, I mean, what is wonderful about, um, you know, this porous... Uh, wall between these two, you know, is that finally we can see television in a cinema, which is in and of itself an incredible experience because you realise that, okay, we, most of us, myself included, just have a pretty basic setup at home. Um, But to see an amazing TV show with huge production values on a big screen with an audience of people it's a completely fantastic experience. It allows you to treat it, treat it like an artwork rather than watching at home where you might answer your phone partway through. Or, yeah, or you might be texting or, or checking your Instagram feed. Or, but it's nice to see it in a room of people because you get that great, you get that great feeling, you know, if it's scary, if it's funny you have that lovely communal experience, which is pretty special. Now, to step back for a moment to Series Mania Melbourne, as I said, this is the second year it's been presented uh, in Australia by ACME and Film Victoria. Why is it important uh, as an event for ACME to to host Series Mania Melbourne and for people who don't know of uh, of its parents, shall we say, Series Mania itself, why is it such a significant event? For ACME itself, I mean, our, our remit, we're the National Museum of Film, Television, Games and Digital Media. So television sits at the very core of what we do at ACME and what we've always done. We've um, 
But when we thought about how do we really celebrate television in a in a consolidated way, um, we looked at Series Mania and saw the incredible work they were doing and we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could partner with somebody to bring this amazing festival rather than, you know, uh, why reinvent the wheel? But also it's it's great to have a partnership in that. So, um, Francois-Pierre, maybe you can tell us some more about yeah, Series Yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, background because uh, for the last 10 years, because the next year it's going to be the 10th anniversary of the festival in France, um, I brought a lot of uh, Australian shows uh, in, in Series Mania, shows like Seven Taps of Big Witty, Red for Now, The Slab. And uh, one of the main points was to bring uh, all the artists teams alongside, meaning that the producers, the directors, the actors were coming and doing Q&A at the end. So the community experience, as Christy was talking about, was full. You discover a show and then you have the occasion to um, really uh, talk with the ones who created the show. And when those produ- Australian producers, actors and, and directors were coming back to Australia, they were meeting people from Acme and saying, wow, we've been to France and there is this concept that's quite interesting. So maybe you could think and work all together. And when um, Katrina Sedgwick uh, took the reins of Acme, she met me uh, and she said, how can we work together? And this is the way the things happen. And the outcome is then something that is accessible for the general public, Mm -hmm. with many sessions being free, but is also has an industry focus as well. So it benefits uh, both viewers and makers of television and indeed people making online content as well. Yeah, so I think what's really wonderful is the partnership between Acme and Film Victoria because, you know, obviously for Film Victoria they are, you know, nurturing the you know the very established makers and the makers of tomorrow and so for for us to be able to have this industry day which will happen tomorrow is um it's really exciting it's a way for practitioners to come together and also to talk about you know the state of the state of the industry at the moment and to meet uh with their colleagues and meet people from overseas as well so it's a really and you know there's some wonderful guests coming along to to have discussions with our local industry the reasons why we we set up these industry days is that of course in internationally there are markets and in markets you've got to sell um, but there was no places where practitioners, where creators could actually share experiences. Everyone is running after something, but just meeting together and facing the same problems, whether you're in Russian television, whether you're in, 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 in England or in Spain, and just sharing uh, views and uh, ideas, um, we quickly discovered that it was also something that was by pivotal to the success of the show uh, of the of the show you see of the of the event uh, mixing um, these creative parts and the, the part with the audience and the things do mix very well because uh, what's very interesting at the end of the screenings when you have the Q&A sessions the questions coming from the audience are very very clever as if everyone is potentially a scriptwriter. Mm. If you've just tuned in, I'm chatting with uh, Christy Matheson from ACME and uh, Francois-Pierre Pellenard-Lambert from Series Mania about Series Mania Melbourne, which is kicking off from today and running through until the 22nd of July at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, ACME at Federation Square. Now, I, am I right in thinking that tonight the uh, the opening night is a new four-part series mm-hmm. from uh, it's the ABC and Prince's Pictures uh, Wrong Kind of Black, which and one of the things 
things I'm intrigued about is a opening with uh, a celebration and recognition of indigenous stories and indigenous voices, which is becoming uh, so quintessential to uh, the the international view of Australia, perhaps. But uh, but also um, this is a new series which is only it's what four fifteen minute episodes. Mm-hmm. So recognizing that again, people are consuming kind of media in different ways, shorter, punchier kind of forms of media because so much of what we watch now we're watching on our phone on the train or the tram yeah and what's really great about um this series is it really is i mean there's fantastic fantastic performances in it um and it has this great mix of being incredibly moving and also these wonderful moments of great humour. Um, it's a show that's set between uh, Palm Island up in Queensland and here in Melbourne. So there's also these, and it's Melbourne in the 70s, so there's all these great kind of scenes. And as you watch it, you're like, I think I know where that laneway is. Oh, isn't that great? They've like put this old car here. But it's it's really well done. And I think at the end of the show, you get a really... Um, you know, you've had a, an enjoyable watch, but what's very interesting is that for us, we thought we would like to open with a show that has, you know, a mixture. It's not a straight-up comedy. It's not a straight-up drama. It's also not a traditional series in terms of its length either. So it really shows people that it's it's about choosing the best content and that's about the best storytelling and the best production. So for us, that's what's very exciting about this as well. We're not bound by it has to be a 52-minute drama. You know, that's not... That that's not the reason why we would choose it as an opening night. Francois Pierre, you said earlier that uh, with Series Mania in France you'd been uh, presenting and programming uh, Australian uh, television. What is it about uh, the range of Australian TV that kind of caught your eye and has caught international attention? It's not as if there's a style of Australian television, for example, but are there kind of um, certain trends or uh, or kind of just... Is there something quintessentially Australian that you that has been has caught attention overseas? I would say the diversity of offerings, because from one year to another, you're always surprised. Uh, uh, last year we had seven types of ambiguity, which takes place uh, in Melbourne uh, in a kind of bourgeois environment with uh, problems regarding grown-ups uh, that are actually uh, uh, resonating worldwide. And this year we had in competition Mystery Road, um, a show that takes place uh, in the Kimberleys uh, in Western Australia, which is a, a kind of an outback noir in, in, in a way. And um, the show was also quite uh, um, very well received because it was like a kind of wow effect. Um, and what's very important is that, uh, especially for international viewers, Australia doesn't now to have to rhyme with surfers and blonde guys. You have to understand that the, the culture is amazingly diverse and it's, it's what I like. And when I pick the slap, when I pick red for now, when I pick uh, seven types, it's always something that's come. Um, and also, it's not traditionally a kind of comedic or it's not a thriller. It's always a kind of in-between. We were the first... Um, four years ago uh, to showcase Please Like Me, who was actually sleeping on one of the shelves of ABC because no one knew in ABC what they, would sh- what they were supposed to do when, with this show. With something that is kind of tragedy, comedy, drama. Kind of- exactly. It has all of that in it and I think that's why audiences love it so much. And and the, the reception was so crazy that the first time in the in the festival history that we showcased each season afterwards. And uh, in the second year a guy from Netflix was there and bought the series worldwide. And we said, Okay, we've done what we were supposed to do, just showcasing things. 
What's being showcased at Series Mania Melbourne this year? Because I think there's, what, there's 23 mm-hmm. different series yeah. that are being screened. And what's really great is we have um, we have shows literally from all over the world. Um, some of the things that I'm very excited about is we have a new show called Deep State, which is actually a British sort of espionage thriller. Um, but our very own Rob Connolly has directed the first four episodes of that and he'll be in conversation after that. So that's really exciting to see the work of an, an Australian but who's working on the international stage there. Um, we've got American Woman, which is a new series uh, that stars Alicia Silverstone. Um, and also I'm very excited. Uh, there's a new program that um, Gail Garcia Bernal has um, executive produced and is in uh, called Here on Earth, which um, is a, a sort of a big uh, production from Fox Latin America. So there's a lot... A lot of different things to see. I don't know what you are excited about, Francois. Um, I'm very excited about um, an Israeli show called Autonomies, um, which is a kind of a science fiction slash political show where Jerusalem becomes independent and the rest of the country becomes a religious state and how the two places live together. And there is another one that's uh, really surprised us last year and uh, received, um, the, 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 the main actress received an award at Series Mania this year. It's called An Ordinary, An Ordinary Woman and it's come from Russia. And uh, you don't happen to see a lot of Russian series. There's a lot of Russian programs and lots of Russian fiction produced. Most of the times based on American concept or mm. formats, but this one is a totally original one. And um, it's, it's an amazing performance from, from, this, uh, from this actress. And uh, you discover a Russia, especially in time of Putin's and the kind of things, that you don't expect to, no, to discover. you don't expect anything that you see in this show. It is quite extra. She is a female character that we have not seen before. And it, I would also uh, say that the other show we have is Dead Lucky, which is the new SBS program starring Rachel Griffiths. And she also plays the kind of woman that we do not normally see on screen. So it's it's quite interesting. But everything with Rachel Griffiths is great. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, casting my eye down the list of uh, countries whose work is represented. So Israel, Australia, obviously the USA, Russia, as we've mentioned, the UK, Belgium, uh, Israel, Spain, not a lot from Southeast Asia or the Asia Pacific. Is that uh, is work not being made? Has it taken longer for the the idea of contemporary series based television to infiltrate some of these countries? Uh, it's a very interesting question because we've, we we have this problem every year. Uh, most of the times, uh, series from Korea or Japan, uh, um, they don't want to travel. Mm. When we pick them, when we try to reach the, the producers, they say, "Oh no, no, we don't want to be seen on the world stage, even if they are very interesting shows." And these shows do travel on special websites and so on, but uh, they don't want to be in a festival. For them, it's not yet the place. That's why one of the uh, main goals for Series Mania is to open uh, a new Series Mania, either in Japan or in South Korea. We're working on it for the next upcoming two years, uh, just to be able to showcase the things. There's a lot of things there, but they don't want to come. I think it speaks too to the huge domestic audiences. I mean, this is something that, you know, even for Japanese cinema, it's uh, classic Japanese cinema we know but there is so much being made in that country but they have a huge domestic audience so is the international stage important for some things here and there but the depth of, of programs that come out of that country is enormous and always of very high quality. Now, I had a guest on the phone all queued up and ready to go. Elaine, hello. 
Hello, Richard. You are a writer and director of uh, a play, Point of No Return, which is currently doing a, a bit of a Victorian tour. Um, you've already done your performance uh, in Bendigo at the Capitol Theatre. Um, uh-huh. And now going on to Drysdale, Werribee, then performing uh, at the Melbourne Spiegelton in Johnston Street, Collingwood, and then heading down to Frankston. So uh, yes. this is, though, I'm really intrigued about the subject matter of the play. It's based on the true story of Australia's first prison for boys and the first time that boys were separated from the men during the, the convict era convict era down in Hobart. Tell us a little bit more about Point of No Return. Right, yes. So the setting is 1834 when Point Poor is the name of the boys' prison was first built uh, opposite Port Arthur in Tasmania. And it is, uh, it's an amazing story because the... It was the British government's first ever attempt at separating boys from men in prisons and any form of rehabilitation. Up to then, it was always about punishment. There was never, ever a thought that, you know, boys could be become full, fully-fledged citizens. So, yeah, and I, when I went to Port Arthur many years ago and did the Point Poor tour, um, I was just thought this is amazing because boys came over aged between 10 and 20 and you know came over in a prison hulk having committed mostly pretty petty crimes and it's really so the play is about a group of boys and how they survive together um and many of them did the story like people on a, a prison play it's all dark i mean there are, there are very dark elements in it but really, there's also a lot of hope because the reality was that many did survive. Many learned to trade and learned to read and write um, and came on, you know, went on to be our first colonists in Australia. It's a particularly timely play now, perhaps, given that issues around youth detention are very much in the media, whether that's uh, the incarceration of young Aboriginal uh, boys in the Northern Territory, for example, and Dondale, or yeah. um, whether it kind of more recently here, kind of in, uh, in Victoria, we've heard about some of the, the issues that are going on in kind of uh, in the Melbourne Youth Justice Centre and so forth. So there's kind of, it's, it's in some ways, it's a timeless story about young uh, boys and young men, adversity, punishment, and how kind of they grow and change. Oh, absolutely! And I was—I've been following the media stories about the riots and Dondale and the Royal Commission that came out of that. And really, even though this is a prison setting, how you deal with youths, like in, at just as they develop into men, is is. Uh, something we haven't solved and we don't do very well even in school settings i think there's things there that we can learn a lot from and it's just fascinating that many of the things that they did wrong at point poor they're still doing wrong today we haven't learned a lot um and certainly at dondale because i was following the reports from the royal commission and they the recommend the discoveries they made and the recommendations that came out of it um, were don't overuse solitary, give the boys, make them feel useful, have good programs for them, have good management structures, give them a sense of purpose. All these things, and they had not done that at Dondale. In fact, there was a lot of cruelty, really bad practices happening, uh, and it wasn't a lot of mismanagement. Um, and probably the same thing applied also Parkville and Malmesbury in Victoria. The riots that came out of that, a lot of the similar 
issues of the prisons, um, it, it's still happening. And one of the big recommendations was that supermax prisons don't work for youth especially, or maybe even for men, I'm not sure, but um, but we keep building them. So it's, it's frustrating. Um, but I believe, I mean, there's a proverb that I discovered that goes, um, it's an African proverb, and it says, uh, take, if you don't initiate the boy into the village, he will burn it down to feel its warmth. And I think that's really at the heart of the play, that the boy's, as much as there's a lot of bravado and a lot of, um, they just want to belong. They want to connect and feel they have a sense of purpose and a sense of, you know, belonging to somebody. And if it's not the family, they'll find a gang. They'll they'll find a way um, of purpose, even if it means destroying something. Elaine, uh, I'm, and, yeah. it really fascinates me that, uh, I mean, the resonances of this play and, and it kind of depresses me that uh, over a hundred and more years later we still haven't learnt some of the lessons that were, were clearly uh, an issue during the Australian convict era. Um, the, does, in terms of kind of uh, the, the creation of the play, um, were you trying to, what, develop a sense of hope that change is possible? Yeah, I think the play, I mean, the even though it's a historical setting and I did a lot of research for it, it really is a story about boys becoming men and how they survive together. So the idea is that you, we've got really rich, real characters that are flawed but totally human. So I wanted the audience... I want the audience to connect with them and either if it's their son or that, you know, you know somebody or or yourself that you know how they behave and it's trying to understand what a lot of the anger can come from and why and why they react in certain ways. I mean, it doesn't give all the answers but it because nobody knows all the answers but at least it just, I think, shows more clearly that even though they're at times brutal and they take risks there's a reason for that there's always uh something behind that and a lot of what you discover about the boys in point of no return gives some explanation i guess or some understanding of why they got to that point and they're no different from you know youth today no different at all they would behave exactly the same way um but they're all they're lacking a father figure and one of the or they're lacking a family network, so they find that amongst themselves. And that's the thing that keeps them together and gives them a sense of hope, is that the, in the, regardless of what happens, it's the support of each other and also the character Hawkins, who's the guard, who actually helps them. And he's kind of ends up being the father figure, even though he's got all his issues. So they'll latch on to anything that's a positive influence in their lives. And that's what they need, yeah, regardless of where the boys, what situation they're in, that hasn't changed. 
I'm talking with writer-director Elaine Beek about the play Point of No Return, which is touring Victoria. Uh, it's being performed at the Potato Shed in Drysdale on the 20th and 21st of July, at Wyndham Cultural Centre in Werribee on the 27th and 28th of July, at the Melbourne Spiegel Tent in Johnson Street, Collingwood, from the 1st to the 11th of August, and then uh, its tour finishes up at Frankston Performing Arts Centre uh, on the 17th of August. I suspect the performances in Werribee will be particularly particularly well attended because, uh, Elaine, you, you're uh, based out in Werribee and the, this play began, I believe, as a short piece uh, for students at Werribee Primary School. Yes, it's come a long way since then. Uh, and again, that came about because I was helping out at my son's school and I just returned not long from Port Arthur and we were doing, I was volunteering to just help the kids with uh, in playwriting um, and I had a group of boys, and they. So I said, "Look, I've got. I'm starting working on this play." So I did a very simple version, but I, but they just jumped on it and loved it. So then, when because I run the drama club at Werribee Secondary College, and a few in two thousand four years ago, we had a cohort of boys who were really talented and wanted to do a drama because I just they did mostly comedy I guess and they wanted to do something they could get their teeth into so because they were older I then developed the play for them and then we got the more research that I did and the more the better response I got from audiences I just knew this had to just go as far as I could take it so it just spurred me on and I just kept uh, building on it and building on it till we have a full-length play and now you know we have a, an amazing cast now um you know, wonderful actors. They're youths themselves, so uh, all they they love. The, they're basically almost playing their age, maybe a few years older, but something they relate to very closely. Um, so yeah, it's it's been fantastic. Point of No Return is uh, a new, well, newish Australian play, shall we say, uh, developed over the last few years uh, and based on the true story of Australia's first boys' prison, the uh, Point Pure Boys' Prison in Tasmania. Uh, if you want uh, booking details and more information about where it's touring, as I said, uh, it's Drysdale, Werribee, uh, Collingwood and Frankston. Jump online, point. Uh, point O-N-R, point O-N-R dot com. Point of No Return is the name of the play, uh, written and directed by Elaine Beek. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope the tour is fantastic success. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for your time. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.